This is 100 Years of Cocks. You are listening to a podcast by Francis Thompson. I'm reading letters written by 10 siblings who were born in the 1800s. Edmund, who is sibling number two, is my great-grandfather. If you've just come across this podcast and you don't know what a budget was, the very first podcast episode I recorded explains the background. And I recently recorded a recap episode, which will tell you more about the siblings. We are still in 1909 and we're up to budget 21 of series one. There were 84 editions of the budget between 1906 and 1920. By September 1920, the siblings had decided to start using an exercise book for each budget, rather than sheets of notepaper. 1920 was the start of series two. They got up to series nine after hundreds of editions of the budget. By the time the last of the siblings, Vera, died in 1973. There were then 23 rounds of the cousins budget between 1974 and 1985 when three of the six cousins died during the space of a few months. Then David, the son of Arthur, wrote the last page of the budget in 1987. In 2007, prompted by my auntie Judy, daughter of Leslie and granddaughter of Edmund, I first visited the Bodleian Library in Oxford and started reading. Today I'm going to read letters written by Edmund, Enid and Avis from budget number 20, then letters from Bernard, Cuthbert and Arthur from budget 21. They were all written in June and July of 1909. Edmund puts Vera on the blacklist for not sealing up the budget envelope properly. It was open when the post arrived, though Edmund thinks all the contents are safe. Enid is surprised that diphtheria is spelled with two H's and she thinks it odd that Arthur and Dorothy spell negotiation with a C. Enid says, on no account must the budget be dropped. It will be a great link between us. Avis has a long weekend off from teaching little Marjorie. She has visited the Natural History Museum and been on the underground on her own. Avis is quite proud of herself for going on the tube on her own. In the Northern Hemisphere, it is almost the summer holidays and the end of the school year. Cuthbert will soon be off to cadet camp with the boys and, as usual, they will be marching all the way from Berkhamstead to Aldershot. Cuthbert also describes a singing mouse in one of the boarding houses. Bernard starts Budget 21 on its rounds. He is writing his letter just before he, Enid and Cyril set off for a holiday in Switzerland. Bernard has been to Lord's to see the test match and he also describes seeing the King and Queen in their carriage in London. They were off to open the Victoria and Albert Museum. Arthur has recovered from diphtheria and is back at school for his last few weeks at Garfield House. He is moving to Mount House School shortly and has 50 boys booked already and he thinks there will be another 20. Arthur is looking forward to the summer holidays. He and Dorothy are going to Prince Hall on Dartmoor again. Normally Arthur plays in the Stoke Tennis Tournament, but due to his poor health, he's giving it a miss this year. Arthur predicts that the weather will now be very good, as he is not competing in the tennis. Clearly, it generally pelted down with rain during the Stoke Tennis Week. The budget was almost lost in the post again. Cuthbert did not seal up the envelope properly. It arrived in Plymouth in much the same condition as Dorothy's much-travelled 
Hatbox. Before I read some letters, I've had some interesting correspondence this week. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you will know that Vera and the other siblings talk about the magazine Ladies Field a great deal. It was a magazine all about ladies' sports, and the siblings frequently mention pictures of Vera and articles that she appears in. Dr Cox was immensely proud of his daughter and would brag to anyone who would listen about his daughter, the famous international, and her latest photo in Ladies' Field. Vera was also known to take tea to the reporter who wrote for Ladies Field at half-time during a hockey match in the hope that this might get her into the latest edition. The British Library has got copies of the magazine from the years when Vera was playing hockey for England. I've not yet seen the articles and photos, but progress has been made with scanning, which is exciting. And I've had another email also about Vera, or more accurately, about Olive Andrews, who was Vera's partner. These two old ladies were living in the town of St Andrews in Scotland in retirement in the 1960s and 70s. And my correspondent, Jane, was a young PE teacher who worked at the same school where Olive had been a PE teacher for many decades. Jane sent me this message, which she received years ago from another woman called Valerie, who used to live next door to Olive and Vera. If you want to look it up, the street is still there. It is called Old Burn Road. You spell it A-U-L-D and then B-U-R-N. And Olive and Vera lived at number one. Jane, the PE teacher, had shown Valerie photos of Olive as a young woman when Olive played hockey, lacrosse and cricket. Valerie just knew Olive and Vera as the two eccentric old ladies who lived next door. Valerie's letter says this. I was fascinated by the pictures of a very young Miss Olive Andrews in your book. She and her friend were my neighbours many years ago. My groceries were constantly and mistakenly delivered to their door. I loved going to collect them as they had a delightful secret garden behind high hedges. Regularly in summer, the elderly Miss Andrews, with wild grey hair, cigarette dangling from the corner of her mouth, skinny legs encased in thick woollen stockings, emerging from a baggy tweed skirt and sporting her English ladies' cricket team blazer, was to be seen on the pavement, perched on a high ladder, clipping away at the hedge. She had spunk. What a picture. Olive was younger than Vera, so she was the one who went up the ladder to trim the hedges, although Olive was no spring chicken either. She had wild grey hair and a cigarette dangling from her lips. She was wearing thick woollen stockings, a baggy tweed skirt and her England lady's cricket blazer. Valerie, who lived next door to Olive and Vera, is no longer alive. But Jane, the young PE teacher, remembers Valerie next door telling her all about these eccentric old ladies who had such spunk. According to letters written by the cousins in the 1970s, Olive and Vera had a very happy retirement in St Andrews. The cousins were so grateful to Olive for making Vera's final years so happy when Vera was grieving after the deaths of the other four members of the younger family, Bernard, Aldwin, Cuthbert and Avis, deaths which occurred in relatively quick succession 
in the 1950s and 60s. Right, Edmund's letter is next. The Parsonage, Hallam Fields, Ilkeston, June 22nd, 1909. Dear Budget Members, I will at any rate make a good start in return for your leniency and will commence my letter the day I receive the budget, though I cannot promise to finish it today. I really think this is the first time it has not caught me at an awkward or inconvenient time. Before I forget it, I must put Vera on the blacklist for the way in which she sent me this instalment. The envelope was absolutely open when I received it, though I believe all its contents are safe. Vera had only just moistened a very small bit of the adhesive part of the envelope, and it had evidently very soon come unfastened, though not torn in the least. I do hope she will be more careful in the future. Both May and I very much appreciated the letter enclosed, containing the account of dear mother's wedding. I am sorry to say that I do not seem to have anything very special to write for the budget just now, but I certainly do agree that it is really most important that we should keep it going regularly now. I know how much dear mother wished it, and I will do my best to keep it going, as I know how very much we shall all miss her precious letters. I am so glad to hear that Arthur is now progressing, but I am afraid when he dictated the first portion of his letter to Dorothy that he must have been a trifle light-headed, and it is really too involved for me, and if I may dare to suggest such a thing, it seemed as if the complaint had spread into Dorothy's usually clear handwriting. But I am afraid I am laying myself open to a good deal, so I had better shut up. June 30th. Here came an unwelcome interruption. I do not now remember what it was, but I know that I really thought I was getting along splendidly and was actually going to do a record in getting the budget off. But now, sad to say, I find it is June the 30th and I've actually again run my full time. I now have only time to add just a few lines and send it on to Enid. We have been rather extra busy with our Sunday school anniversary services and Sunday school treat, which we finished with late last night. I shall have to send this on without any comment on the other budget letters, to my real regret. The latest member of the Machelcox family continues to thrive and grows apace, but I am sorry to say that May is not very well and seems to be all nerves. I do wish we could have a little really warm weather. We have actually needed a fire today on this, the last day of June. I am expecting to go to Duffield on Saturday next to play in a golf match for our club on the Duffield links, which are on the Chevin. And I suppose I shall renew my acquaintance with some of the old stone walls. May says it is not her fault I have not sent this on earlier, but I really did not realise I had had it so long. Your affectionate brother, Edmund. Notes on Edmund's letter. Edmund accuses Vera of not closing the envelope securely, 
when she posted the budget to him. Fortunately, none of the letters were lost. The siblings were posting a bulky envelope around, as each letter usually consisted of many pages. By the time the budget got to Cuthbert, he needed two envelopes for posting it to Arthur. Cuthbert did not seal up the envelopes properly either. Arthur tells him off, saying the budget arrived in Plymouth in much the same condition as Dorothy's much-travelled hat box. What a great phrase. Ladies would take a hat box on the train with them when going on holiday, and the hat box became battered so that the hat inside it did not become battered. An occasional envelope with an address and a stamp has survived, but mostly the many pages of each budget were collected together in a new envelope with names and dates written on it by the sibling who later filed them all into some sort of order. It is amazing that so few of these letters were lost in the post, considering how many thousands of miles they have travelled around the world. Edmund says Vera should be put on the blacklist. This was quite usual behaviour by the siblings, and it meant that someone was being criticised for one reason or another. The siblings also had a blacklist for authors. Marie Corelli was one author who was regularly put on the blacklist. Most of them thought her books were terrible. Dr Cox once got into a rage when he discovered a Marie Corelli book actually in the house in Longton Avenue being read by one of his children. Edmund thinks that Arthur's diphtheria has spread into Dorothy's handwriting, which was normally much better. Her handwriting was indeed atrocious in that letter, but Edmund says he'd better shut up or someone will start criticising his handwriting. Meanwhile, May is not well. She is all nerves, but baby Leslie is thriving and getting big. Edmund is going to Duffield to play golf. He says he is going to the Duffield links, which are on the Chevin, and he's going to renew his acquaintance with the old stone walls. I've got no idea why he's talking about stone walls, except that Edmund and his brothers would have known that part of Derbyshire well. As youngsters, they would have played in the countryside around their village, long before there were any motor cars on the roads. If you know Derbyshire at all, you may know the names Duffield, Belper and Chevin. All these places are just north of Derby. Dr Cox was born in Parwich. Thank you to Rob for Ashbourne for the correct pronunciation. And Dr Cox later lived in Belper, and then the family lived in Hazelwood. The first seven children were born when the family lived at Chevin House, when Dr Cox was still a director of the Wingerworth Colliery whilst he was involved in politics. The Duffield Golf Course later became Chevin Golf Club, and whilst their website says the club was formed in 1894, I wouldn't be surprised if golf was happening there before that date. From brief bits in letters, it seems as if Arthur and Edmund were playing golf near their home in Hazelwood before the family moved to Litchfield. I see from the golf club page that the influential local Strutt family were also golf club members. Fred Strutt was a friend of Dr Cox. They were the same age and I reckon they were at school together as small boys. Fred often pops up in the letters. He appears to have been a difficult man but a great friend and Dr Cox dedicated one of his books to Fred. I think the two of them probably grew up together and played golf on the links at Chevin and then Edmund, Arthur and Neville followed suit. But the fascinating thing from this week 
is my realisation that my husband's silver cigarette box, a family heirloom inherited from his grandfather, carries the inscription Chevin Golf Club. It sits on a shelf here in Australia, 16,000 kilometres from Derbyshire. His maternal grandparents both played golf at Chevin from the 1930s onwards, and in 1953, this silver cigarette case was a prize. The inscription has his initials, EJB, Chevin Golf Club, Captain's Prize, 1953, Coronation Year. Membership of Chevin in the 1930s wasn't cheap. There was a local golf course run by the council, which was much cheaper. My mother-in-law remembers spending time in the ladies' room as a small child in the 1930s, which was upstairs on the first floor, where ladies played bridge after a round of golf, whereas the men relaxed downstairs in their own separate area, which was no doubt equally comfortable. My mother-in-law says it is pronounced Chevin. When I read the name, I thought it would be Chevin. If you are local and have an opinion, I would be interested to hear it, so do please email me. Members of the Machel Cox family played golf at Chevin, but I think it was decades before the grandparents of my other half. It ain't half a small world sometimes. Enid's letter, 27 Sefton Park Road, Liverpool, July the 2nd, 1909. Dear family, I'm having the budget out of my turn as I made a special petition to have it before Avis this time as I want to have as little writing as possible to do while we are away on our holiday. We are going much earlier than usual this year as Cyril gets a little extra holiday on account of his having just finished five years as chief examiner for mathematics in all the training colleges. We hope to leave England on July the 9th accompanied by Bernard en route for Chamonix, a part of Switzerland, or rather France, that we've never been to. I expect we shall move on to two or three other places, staying a week at each. I expect it will do us a great deal of good. The complete change of surroundings that one gets abroad is in itself such a rest and a relief. Cyril, too, is spared the annoyance of getting official letters and references, which otherwise go on coming all through his holiday. Since I last wrote, Hazel has had a good deal of trouble with her ears, all caused by an attack of measles, and has had much ear ache and deafness. I took her to a specialist, who said she needs her adenoids removing. A fortnight ago this was done most successfully, and Hazel is now quite well again. Cyril's sister Muriel has been staying with us, and as she is a doctor, she was a great help. Owen has now begun to specialise in mathematics. To his great joy, we had a most excellent half-term report. I hope he will keep it up until the end of the term. The King is going to rugby tomorrow to open the new big speech room in honour of Archbishop Temple. We had tickets sent to us, but Cyril could not go, and I did not feel at all inclined for all the fuss and bother just now. So we sent the tickets to Charlie Isles and his wife at Wolverhampton for them to use. Arthur, I had no idea that diphtheria was spelt with two H's. 
But why do you and Dorothy spell negotiation with a C? It looks very odd to my eyes. Is it a Yankee innovation? Did your imposter ever arrive with his expected cheque? I am sure we all wish you every possible success in your new school. It is very courageous of you and Dorothy to have undertaken anything so big. Cuthbert, I was very interested in your tennis agitation. Doubtless the club has very much benefited. In the early days at Preston, I consider that to a great extent I reformed that tennis club. I shall evidently have to make an effort to read Tono Bongay by H.G. Wells after what Burr and Cuthbert say about it, but I'm very reluctant to do so. I'd almost made up my mind not to read another of his books. An Englishman's Castle by M. Lorne. The author is a district nurse and has already written two other most interesting books on the way the poor live. The Next Street But One and The Queen's Poor. She has much common sense, a great gift of humour and long experience. The book is full of quaint sayings and anecdotes and yet is a real contribution to social and economic knowledge. I am sure those of you who have not already seen it will be very interested in the old letter describing Mother's wedding. It was written by Evelyn Atkinson, who was one of Mother's bridesmaids. I am very glad Vera gave you such a beautiful account of dear Mother in her illness. It was, as she says, quite wonderful to see how unselfish she was. She was all the time thinking of other people and throwing herself into their lives. She was so anxious that Vera and Nurse Spencer should not be tired, and yet never complained of all that she had to bear. I really believe that God took away her dread of death and gave her a strong hope of recovery in order to spare her the pain of parting. I'm having an old photo that Cyril took years ago enlarged. I hope it may be successful. If so, you shall all have a copy. On no account now must the budget be dropped. It will be a great link between us. Nothing can ever replace Mother's letters to us all. But Vera is going to undertake as much of her correspondence as she can. It is a great task and I know we shall be very grateful to her. So the least we can do is all write home regularly. Goodbye, your loving sister, Enid. Notes on Enid's letter. Enid, her husband Cyril, the school's inspector, and Bernard are going on holiday to Switzerland, so Enid gets her budget letter written before they depart. Enid and Cyril don't take their children abroad with them. Generally, Owen and Hazel go to Clevedon, which is a town on the coast near Bristol, and they go and stay with the Reverend Isles and Muriel, who are members of Cyril's family. Letters like this one show how wealthy some of the siblings were compared to the vast majority of ordinary people in Britain. They planned to visit Chamonix first, which is a resort at the foot of Mont Blanc. The town of Chamonix is in France, but it's very close to the Italian and Swiss borders. Enid said, I expect we shall move on to two or three other places, staying a week at each. 
I expect it will do us a great deal of good. The complete change of surroundings that one gets abroad is in itself such a rest and a relief. Cyril is spared the annoyance of getting official letters and references, which otherwise go on coming all through his holiday. My grandfather Leslie described his auntie Enid as being very aristocratic. She wasn't an aristocrat, of course. He meant she just seemed that way to him when he was young. Enid was the poshest of the siblings, very much a Victorian, who was used to a comfortable life with servants. Hazel is Enid and Cyril's daughter. She had measles but recovered okay and then had problems with her hearing. Meanwhile, Owen, who is a teenager, is doing well at rugby school. He is an excellent swimmer and is good at chess and maths as well. For those who don't know, Rugby School is one of the UK's elite private schools. It is situated in the town of Rugby, to the east of Coventry and Birmingham, and it's also where the game of rugby football was first invented, by a boy who ignored the rules, picked up a football and ran with it. Enid said, the King is going to Rugby tomorrow to open the new big speech room in honour of Archbishop Temple. We had tickets sent to us, but Cyril could not go, and I did not feel at all inclined for all the fuss and bother just now. So we sent the tickets to Charlie Isles and his wife at Wolverhampton for them to use. There are all sorts of photos online. King Edward VII travelled on the royal train. He planted a tree. He opened the new speech room and he inspected the cadet corps. There were huge crowds who came to watch. But Cyril was too busy to go and Enid wasn't inclined for all the fuss and bother, so she gave the tickets to other family members to go instead. Enid wants to know if spelling negotiation with a C is a Yankee innovation, and did the scamp in a box hat and a frock coat ever turn up at Garfield House, asking Arthur to cash a cheque. The book Tono Bungay was written by H.G. Wells and first published in 1908. Bernard and Cuthbert say it is a good book, so Enid says, oh well, I'm going to have to read it now, although I'd made up my mind never to read another of his books. Tono Bungay is about quack medicine, the power of advertising, and about how people can be gullible and believe anything they are told. H.G. Wells was more well known for his science fiction books, especially The War of the Worlds, whereas this book is a satire all about the English class system and social climbing. The siblings are still grieving for their mother and reminiscing, and there is discussion about getting a photo of mother enlarged. Vera is going to undertake as much of mother's correspondence as she can manage. This means she is agreeing to write to each of the foreign brothers every single week, and she will choose a particular day on which to write to a brother the same day each week. Vera and Aldwin were clearly the best pair at managing this, which they did for the next 50 years. Almost without fail, unless Aldwin was at home in England on holiday, Vera wrote a letter to Aldwin every single week, and Aldwin wrote a letter to Vera, even if he was visiting a distant village in Malawi with no hope of posting it, he still wrote a letter to his sister on his designated day. Avis's letter. 
13 Longton Avenue, Sydenham South East, July the 5th, 1909. Dear family, Enid has had the budget before me this time, as she thought she'd better have it before going abroad. Perhaps Burr will be able to get in his letter too. I've been having quite a holiday lately. Marjorie went down to Westgate on Friday morning and returns sometime today, Monday. So I've had Friday, Saturday, Sunday and Monday as holidays. I think I'd better get my letter written today. It is 4pm and Vera has just come in. She has been to the academy with Miss Foster, her second visit to it. Miss Foster admired quite different pictures and styles to Vera, but I think it will be rather interesting to go with someone with quite different views. I went with Vera and Burr last Saturday week, I think, and enjoyed it very much. I should like to see it again. I rather wish I had longer in London now. I thought I should dislike it very much, as I did not love London when I was there with the Blagdens. I should like to go to the National Gallery many times, and other galleries, and so far I have not been this time. Then I have just discovered the joy of the Natural History Museum. It is quite close to Pont Street, and quite easy to find, but after every little excursion I make, I feel so proud of myself, finding my way all alone. I have Burr's Baydecker guide with me. I don't take it with me, but I look up ways, etc. beforehand. I walked to the museum and then took the district line back to Victoria. I went to the museum intending to look at the insects, as I wanted to see if they had any specimens of solitary bees and wasps that Marjorie is learning about this term. However, I thought I would look at the bird part first. Well, I got there about 3.30, I suppose, and did not leave until 5.30 or later. I missed tea. I spent all my time in that part and the British mammals at the end of the gallery. I had been with Arthur one holidays, but felt bad and had to leave before we had even seen a quarter. I thought then how interesting it looked, and now I know some more birds. All the well-known British birds and all I have heard of, are represented in cases with their nests and natural surroundings, most beautifully done. I should like to go again, very much. I never even got to the insects and the botanical part at all. I think I'm going to take Billy one morning. I took her to Westminster Abbey one morning, and she was very much interested. We are reading a book this term by Mrs. Fruin Lord, called Tales from Westminster Abbey, in which stories are told about the men to whom monuments are put up. There is also a short history of Westminster Abbey and a plan, etc. So she knew a lot about it beforehand. I went one afternoon before I took her so as to go around the chapels with a guide to see what I thought may interest her. And then I took her on a day when the chapels are free and no guide is required, and I was the guide. We had been reading Captain Cook in Stories of the Heroes series, I think that is the name, and I saw a monument put up to Captain Cook, and thought at the time that it was our one, and I don't like thinking now of how I tried to explain it to Marjorie as Captain Cook. It was rather a dreadful blunder, and of course one she remembered and told her relations. 
I had to climb down, of course, when I found I had made a mistake. Billy would admire the horrid, gaudy coloured windows. But then children always do like bright colours. I took her up the monument the other day and enjoyed it very much. There is a wonderful view from the top and we had a taxi there, which I liked. I had never been up the monument before. One afternoon, I went to see Alice Scott in West Kensington about a dress she is making for me. She seemed very happy on the whole in her little sitting room. She was so proud of it as she has added furniture to it and put up the pictures. I went to tea with an ex-student who was teaching in London, but she seemed very lonely and depressed in her post. She does have rather a lonely time of it, I think. It is awfully nice for me getting home every evening. It does make a difference. However, I often think now what a fool I was when I was in London before with the Blagdens. I never knew then what to do if I had an afternoon free and I was afraid to go out by myself. Well, now I see what heaps of things I might have done and seen and with scarcely any cost. Still, I don't think I should like a permanent post in London at all. It is rather stifling. Next Monday the 12th, I go to Portal in Tarpoli, Cheshire again, and Mrs Brooks and the household come up a few days later. Poor Vera is now trying to write to Cuthbert while I jabber at her at intervals. She says she has never written such a rotten letter at any time, and poor Cuthbert is on a sickbed. Well, Cuthbert, remember it is all due to me. We had Ama Valance here to tea and supper on Sunday night. Oh, he is such a quaint man. He simply doubles up with laughter, goes off into chuckle after chuckle over such very simple jokes. He can hardly tell a story for laughing and it is so irresistibly funny to see him and his laughter is so catching that Burr, Vera and I get quite weak with laughing too and he doesn't know we are laughing at his merriment and thinks we have appreciated the joke or the story and goes off into fresh chuckles. He really is very nice and exceedingly kind. The garden is looking so very pretty now with poppies, cornflowers, purple and white Canterbury bells, daisies, geraniums and roses. Such a mass of colour. I've never been at home this time of year before, I think, and it is ages since I had a birthday at home. I was so pleased with Enid's present to me. She had mother's ring done up for me. It was one she used to wear a good deal with blue enamel and pearls. It looks so nice now, and I am fortunate to have it. Wasn't it nice to get it on my birthday? Dear Mother, I feel as if she'd drawn us very close together in her death, and as if she were very near to us. God bless her. Your affectionate sister, Avis Machel Cox. <laughs> Notes on Avis's letter. Avis is still in London, living at home whilst the Brooks family are at their London house. Avis paints an extraordinary picture of life for a young governess in London at the turn of the century. She travels on the train into the city every day to teach her young pupil and also takes her out on trips 
to museums, the monument and Westminster Abbey. Avis feels very pleased with herself at negotiating the London Underground on her own and she uses Burr's Baydecker guidebook to work out where she wants to go. Avis clearly used to live in London before when she was a governess for the Blagden family but she was too scared to venture into London on her own during an afternoon off and now, some years later, she realises how easy it is. It was no longer a social requirement for young women to have a chaperone accompanying them, but some ladies either had not yet got out of the habit or not yet realised that they were capable of navigating the city on their own. I wonder if young women like Avis liked the idea of going out with a brother for the day because then they didn't have the bother of having to work out the route. I get the impression that Vera was more modern and independent than her cautious sister. I also imagine that Enid rarely travelled anywhere on her own. I cannot imagine her independently navigating London's tube trains. Avis explains an embarrassing mistake where she muddled up Captain Cook with an E and Captain Cook without an E. Avis is taking little Marjorie round Westminster Abbey and they see a memorial to Captain Cook with an E on the end of his name. He was a sailor who served under Nelson in the Mediterranean in the 1700s. I think Avis muddled up Captain Edward Cook with Captain James Cook, the British explorer who also lived in the 1700s, who was well known for his voyages to Australia and New Zealand. Marjorie went home and told her family all about it, and poor Avis had to admit she'd made a mistake. It's interesting that little Billy admired the horribly gaudy coloured windows in Westminster Abbey, whereas presumably Avis didn't. She writes, children always do like bright colours. Maybe it was the fashion in the early 1900s for people to not like the beautiful stained glass windows in churches. How fascinating. I have no idea. Avis travels from Sydenham to West Kensington to see Alice Scott, who was making a dress for Avis. Maybe Alice was a family friend, as Avis is telling her siblings about the visit, so it sounds like they knew her. Maybe Alice used to be a domestic servant, formerly employed by the family. No idea. But this is a reminder that ladies didn't buy clothes in the shops. A dressmaker would measure you. Dresses were ordered beforehand and then made to measure. No impulse shopping, as we do today. On July the 12th, 1909, Avis is returning to Tarpoli again. She is in the advance party, one of the staff who go to open up the house again and get it ready for the family, who will then travel from London to Cheshire later on. Historical anecdotes like this one show how things have changed immensely in the last 100 years. Aimer Valance pops up in the budget again. He is another of Dr Cox's friends, but the siblings like Aimer Valance much more than Fred Strutt. I don't know much about Aimer, except that he was an artist and was also a friend of the arts and crafts artist William Morris. Aimer knew him very well and wrote his biography. I think Aimer was also involved with Dr Cox and his books, as well as the research which went into them beforehand. Avis says that Aimer Valance is very nice and exceedingly kind, and his infectious laughter has them all chuckling. It is Avis's birthday, and Enid has given her mother's ring, 
with blue enamel and pearls, and Avis is thrilled with the gift. Dear mother, says Avis, I feel as if she'd drawn us very close together in her death, and as if she were very near to us. God bless her. The budget has safely arrived back in Sydenham, in two bulky envelopes. Bernard removes his old letter, writes a new one, and starts Budget 21 on its rounds. The envelope in which this budget was eventually stored has the names, dates and locations written in Bernard's tidy handwriting. No foreign contributions for this budget, just seven letters from the seven siblings who live in England. Bernard, Cuthbert, Arthur and Vera all wrote their letters in July. Avis, Edmund and Enid wrote their letters in August. Budget number 21. Bernard's letter. Sydenham, July 8th, 1909. Dear family, I must write tonight as Enid will be here tomorrow and on Saturday we start for abroad. I'm looking forward to it very much. I hope we shall have fine weather. It has been very bad lately. Edmund, we had a fire in July. Cuthbert, the garden is looking very pretty, though the torrents of rain have rather dashed it lately. We have had in an unemployed man as a gardener. He was quite good and improved the look of it very much. He was rather contemptuous about the way the ferns had been potted. Poor Cuthbert. It was quite a pleasure to see Dorothy's writing in the budget again, but it was rather difficult to read. Perhaps Arthur dictated too fast. You will all be pleased and surprised to hear that Avis has not yet missed her train in spite of Vera's prophecy. It must have been quaint, having a taxi on the top of the monument. I wonder how she managed it. Vera's description of the church pageant was so good that there is very little I can add. There was one thing I didn't at all like. In the final scene, when all the performers came on together with torches, a lot of Boy Scouts appeared. They looked picturesque, of course, but entirely out of place. As far as I know, they have no connection whatever with the church. The church lads brigade would perhaps have looked odd, but would have been much more appropriate. It was well worth seeing, and we were very lucky in getting two fine days. I saw one morning of the second test match at Lord's, when England collapsed for 121. It was a disappointing display. I think the next test match team will be nearly the same as the one at Lord's. Though they failed so badly, it was a good team and it would be rather difficult to alter it much. I wish McLaren would drop out and Fry doesn't seem to come off in test matches. Avis, Vera and I, on our way to the academy, were held up by the King going to open the Victoria and Albert Museum. We saw him quite well. He looked very jolly and the Queen was as handsome as ever. Princess Victoria, though ugly, looked quite all there and quite self-possessed. Ama Valance assures us that she has a habit of putting her tongue out at people. We had Miss Thompson, a Kota lady, not a native, here the other day. She was quite nice and gave us interesting accounts of Aldwin. We were very much shocked at some of the stories she told us of him. 
when he was recovering from one of his fevers, she, who was nursing him, did something which annoyed him. He quietly asked for a tea cloth. She, foolishly, gave him one, and he deliberately burnt a hole in it with the candle by his bedside, so that she should have the trouble of patching it. It will be a very long time before Aldwin will be able to contradict this. I haven't read many books lately. The Story of Hawksgarth Farm by Emma Brooke. Very good. Scene laid on the coast of Lancashire, Westmoreland, apparently Morecambe Bay. It sounds quite a picturesque part of England. Well worth reading. I've only just read Choir Invisible by James Lane Allen and I liked it very much. It is in one of the Seven Penny series and quite worth getting. I don't feel that I can possibly express my feelings about Mother's last illness in any other way than Vera and Enid have done already. They have said exactly what I thought. Her unselfishness was really wonderful. Apart from the sadness of it, her last illness will always be a beautiful memory. Your affectionate brother, Bernard. Notes on Bernard's letter. I found loads of photos online taken when King Edward VII opened the new speech room at Rugby School on Saturday 3rd of July 1909 and his journey there by the Royal Train. It was the week before, on the 26th of June, that King Edward, Queen Alexandra and Princess Victoria travelled by carriage across London to Kensington. I can't find any photos of their visit to the museum in June. The King didn't actually open the museum in 1909. His mother, Queen Victoria, did that in 1857, when the museum was known as the South Kensington Museum. Interestingly, there were refreshment rooms in 1857. This was the first museum in the world to make the decision to include a refreshment room, apparently. Queen Victoria laid the foundation stone of the Aston Webb building in 1899, which was when the museum was renamed and became the Victoria and Albert Museum. Aston Webb was the young architect whose design had been chosen, and apparently he later also designed the facade of Buckingham Palace. King Edward VII was opening the Aston Webb building when Avis Burr and Vera, on their way to the Royal Academy, were held up by the royal carriage. The inscription, which was unveiled by the king in 1909, reads this. This building, being the completion of the Victoria and Albert Museum, was opened by His Majesty Edward VII, King of Great Britain and Ireland and of the British Dominions beyond the seas, Emperor of India, on the 26th day of June 1909, in the ninth year of his reign. And a last interesting bit of trivia. At the start of World War II, museums like the V and A knew they needed to protect their collections. Some of the V and A collection were sent to a quarry in Wiltshire and hidden there. Other items were put in a tunnel of the London Underground near Oldwich Tube Station. But some of the larger items had to stay in Kensington at the museum. These items were encased with sandbags for added protection 
and then these areas were bricked up for safety for the duration of the war. Also, Bernard describes Princess Victoria, though ugly, as quite all there and self-possessed. Ama Valance assures us that she has a habit of putting her tongue out at people. Photos and paintings exist of Princess Victoria, who was just one of their many children, and she looks quite normal, so I've got no idea what Burr was talking about. The majority of the siblings are very keen on both watching and playing cricket, and Burr has been to Lord's to see the second test match. England collapsed for 121, and he says the cricket was disappointing. McLaren is the cricketer who Edmund previously met on the train, and then told his siblings all about it. I've got no idea if Fry, the cricketer, is any relation to Dr Fry, the headmaster of Berkhamstead, or his useless son, who Cuthbert called Ulysses. Miss Thompson is a nurse who works at the UMCA mission with Aldwin in Nyasaland. She becomes something of a family friend, and will feature in quite a few upcoming budget letters. She's home from Africa on leave, and will remain in England for a lot longer than originally planned, due to the actions of the bishop and the finances of the mission. I'm not sure that we ever discover her first name. She is always referred to as Miss Thompson. Anyway, she tells a bizarre story about Aldwin, who is ill in bed with yet another fever, and is annoyed at something she's said or done. He deliberately burns a hole in a tea towel, using the candle at his bedside. He does this intentionally, so Miss Thompson will have to patch it. And Burr says, ha ha, it will be months before Aldwin reads this letter, and even longer before a reply might arrive, in which Aldwin might attempt to explain his actions. I think this is a remarkable anecdote, not only because it is a man deliberately making work for a woman to do, and also that the woman is obliged to do the mending, but also she had to sew a patch on a tea towel. Has anyone actually ever patched up a tea towel? I know I never have. I think grief was expressed very differently 100 years ago, certainly by this family. Bernard says he can't add anything to what Vera and Enid have already said. They have said exactly what he has been thinking about mother. Apart from the sadness of it, mother's last illness will always be a beautiful memory. Cuthbert's letter, Prince Edward Street, Berkhamsted, July the 14th, 1909. Dear Budget, I will begin my letter tonight, though I know I shall not have time to finish it. I am feeling very slack though not at all disinclined to write. I've not quite recovered yet from an annoying chill which overtook me rather more than a week ago. I only had to stop in bed four days, but I still feel rather feeble. However, if this welcome change in the weather continues, I shall be quite fit for camp. We start next Friday, and we who are going score greatly as we get off four days before the rest of the school, which does not break up till Tuesday. I have been playing a lot of tennis this last week and had the joy of playing in a match again last week. I was playing in the first pair and though we lost to their first pair, we got a set and we easily beat the others. Since I last wrote, 
we have had the excitement of Founders Day. This year we had an innovation. It was decided to hold it on a Friday in the middle of the term and to have the old boys cricket match on the Saturday, thus getting a two-day break in the middle of term. It was an unqualified success. Canon Scott Holland, who gave away the prizes, made one of the best and most humorous speeches I've ever heard. The match next day, followed by an old boy dinner, rounded things off splendidly. As you will have noticed, Rugby and Berkhamsted between them carried off what was most worth having at Bisley. Rugby's score in the Ashburton was magnificent. I shan't feel so small, however, with Owen, as we won the rapid firing with 78 to Rugby's 20. We've also had another scholarship at Cambridge this term, although this time it was only music at Keys. Have any of you heard of a singing mouse? The other day at St John's, two or three men were in Green's study about 10.30pm when they heard what they thought was a bird singing in the prefect's room, which is quite close. They went in to see, but could find nothing, though the singing continued and seemed to come from low down behind a small bookcase. They moved that, and a mouse darted out and disappeared down a hole in the corner. Green mentioned this next day to his form, and one of them told him that mice did sometimes sing, and when Green laughed, the boy referred him to the Encyclopaedia Britannica, where sure enough, it says that there have been a good many instances of it. They sing rather like a canary, but the reason for it is not known. Have any of you heard of it? By the way, Howard has got a job as assistant agent at Windsor Great Forest, which pleases him very much. He was down for the old boy match and he made 90 runs. Here is a story which I hope is new. A mother took her little girl to the zoo for the first time and while they were having tea she asked her which animal she liked best. The girl said she liked the dangeroos. Oh no, you mean the kangaroos, the mother said. But as the child insisted, the mother said she must take her and show her what animal she meant. So the girl led her up to the lion cage and there pointed triumphantly to the sign. These animals are dangeroos. Books I have read. Colonel Stowe by H.C. Bailey. A civil war story, but full of humour and incident. Well worth reading, I think. Priscilla of the Good Intent by Halliwell Sutcliffe. A very good story of Yorkshire Moor folk in his usual Blackmore style. The Half Moon, J. M. Huefer. A falling off, I think, though not uninteresting, deals with the voyage of Hudson, the discoverer of Hudson Bay. Post just going. Please forgive bad writing. Your affectionate brother, Cuthbert. <laughs> Notes on Cuthbert's letter. Cuthbert is looking forward to cadet camp, which he always enjoys, despite camp being exhausting. The boys and their teachers marched from Berkhamsted to Aldershot, following quite a direct route, through small towns and villages, where they slept in a barn each night, by prior arrangement with a farmer. Their luggage went in a horse-drawn wagon, 
which interestingly is spelled with two G's. And boys with flat feet or other health issues sometimes rode in the wagon instead of marching. These schoolboys were training for war, although they didn't know it. Most of the boys in the cadet corps would have died in the First World War. Owen is the son of Enid and Cyril, and he is a pupil at rugby school. I haven't researched any of this, but there was clearly a competition at Bisley, and rugby school gained a magnificent score in the Ashburton. But Berkhamsted School have beaten rugby in the rapid firing competition, which was possibly shotguns or pistols. So Owen won't be able to gloat to his Uncle Cuthbert this time. There was probably a lot of friendly rivalry between these private schools. There probably still is, actually. Cuthbert tells his siblings that Founders Day has gone well. He doesn't say what happened originally, but the latest idea is to have Founders Day on a Friday in the middle of term, followed by the old boys cricket match on the Saturday, and then the old boys dinner, which gives everyone two days break from classes. Canon Scott Holland gave away the prizes and gave an excellent and entertaining speech. Often the visiting dignitary was terribly dull, and Cuthbert always tells his siblings this news as well. But this year's chap was okay. Berkhamsted have gained another feather in their cap. A boy has gained a scholarship to Cambridge, but it is only a music scholarship at Keys. Oh, Cuthbert, I thought you were a good singer and you liked music. You have gone down in my estimation for saying it was only a music scholarship. If you're not a Brit and you don't know these things, the English language has some strange conventions. Keyes College at Cambridge University is spelled C-A-I-U-S, but yet it is pronounced Keyes. Have any of you heard of a singing mouse? asks Cuthbert. Charles Green was the housemaster of St John's Boarding House in 1909 and several of the masters are in his study late at night when they hear a mouse singing in the prefect's room nearby. As an interesting aside, Charles Green became headmaster in 1910 after Dr Fry, but he's more well known for being the father of Graham Green, who grew up to become one of the most acclaimed English novelists of the 20th century. Little Graham is only five years old when this story takes place and he would have been asleep in bed upstairs. The men move a bookcase and a mouse disappears into a hole in the skirting board. Green later tells the story to the boys in his class and one boy says, yes sir, they can sing. Green laughs at the boy, who is insistent and tells his teacher to look it up in the Encyclopaedia Britannica where, sure enough, it says that mice can sing rather like a canary, but no one knows why. Well, now they do. As university researchers have discovered that only male mice sing, and they do so because they are looking for a female, or they can smell her urine. Seriously, I'm not making this up. Duke University have been researching this. They've been recording male mice singing their hearts out, calling for a female. I've been watching a fascinating video online. I will share it on Twitter. You can look it up if you type in singing mouse Duke University. Here's a quote from Jonathan Chabot, one of the researchers at Duke. A male mouse sings loud and complex songs when an eligible bachelorette is nearby but not sighted. When he's in her presence, 
he sings more quietly and simply. And Cuthbert then tells a charming little story about a girl at the zoo who likes the danger ruse. This story works better when reading it written down. These animals are dangerous, says the sign outside the lion's enclosure. But the little girl has read the sign instead as these animals are danger ruse. Cuthbert had read loads of books, most of which I haven't mentioned. He'd spent four days in bed, having caught a chill, and he's read many novels. In Avis's letter previously, she said Vera was trying to write a letter to Cuthbert, who was ill in bed, and Avis kept on jabbering at Vera, who says she has never before written such a rotten letter, and it is all Avis's fault. Arthur's letter. Garfield House, 25th of July, 1909. Dear family, this is the last time I shall put Garfield House on my budget letter. Before I forget, I must caution Cuthbert. The budget this time reached me safely in two envelopes, but on the last round it had burst open and had been stuck up again, arriving in much the same condition that I associate with Dorothy's much-travelled hat box. I fear I owe letters to most of you, but if I can now do my duty to you collectively, it will be something. I am now just at the end of exams and looking forward greatly to a fortnight clear holiday out at Prince Hall before the turmoil begins again. Unfortunately for our fishing prospects, we have had by no means our full complement of rain lately and the dart will be very low. However, there is time for a good deal yet before Saturday, and as Stoke Tennis Tournament begins tomorrow, rain cannot hold off for very long. Traditionally, the tennis week resolves itself into water polo, but perhaps this year, as I am out of it, it will be gloriously fine. You may detect a trace of the true angler's altruism in the above pious aspirations. I am feeling very sad to lose the tennis, but it has seemed wiser to leave it alone for the present. I have, of course, many arrangements to make about next term, but most of them will wait till I get back. I've had a pile of applications for the one vacant mastership, mostly unsuitable. Whenever I make inquiries about a likely candidate, I extract something that is damning. One candidate gave a reference to Miss Taylor of Belper, where Edmund and I spent more or less happy days 30 years ago. I was so delighted to hear she was still going that I wrote a letter to her and signed myself her old pupil. I will put in her reply if I don't forget. One man, who I am rather disposed to engage, says his present age is 24. Nearly all are quaint in one way or another. For the most part, their photographs make you sit up. Last Tuesday, Dorothy and I faced the trying ordeal of meeting a number of parents at Miss Tubbs's at home. It was a nightmare of interrupted conversations, and long before the end, I felt hopelessly confused. People are slow in making up their mind and in letting you know their intentions. I have 50 boys now booked but at least another 20 probably are coming, but have not let me know. 
One parent wrote me a beautiful letter concluding, I trust that the tide of epidemics may be checked and turned back. I am taking on all Miss Tubbs's boys at their present fees, often very much reduced. One parent, my new rector, who has a boy there educated for nothing, is very persistent in assuring me that his son will be one of my pupils, without any reference whatsoever to the pounds, shillings and pence. A lot of my new pupils are Boy Scouts. I think the movement has considerably outstripped the original intentions of its promoters. The Scouts of this neighbourhood are legion, but their performances would make Baden-Powell's hair stand on end. The noise when one goes out to any favoured resort on a Saturday or a Wednesday afternoon is astonishing. And the scouts are so thick on the ground that they tumble over one another. They take themselves seriously, however, and so far as I've seen, abstain from deliberate annoyance of other folk, which is a great deal to be thankful for. I think their appearance at the church pageant was very incongruous. Christopher is going to see the York pageant. He doesn't know it yet, but he will be delighted. It will appeal to his love of history and acting. He is going to Terrington again for this month, and will come back perhaps when Eleanor does. Enid, I don't spell negotiation in that way. Dorothy does, I believe, and the printer always alters it to negotiation with a C, so I let it stand. I attempted Tono Bungay. If you take my advice, you won't abandon your present prejudices, but let him alone. Cuthbert, your story of the singing mouse is interesting. I've often heard of one, but never felt quite sure whether to believe it, till Blight told me last term that they had one at his house that regularly comes out and gives an evening concert in their kitchen. I was quite delighted with the description of Mother's wedding. I had no idea such a letter was in existence. I'm still in hopes that I shall come across the negatives from which Vera, I think, has a print. I've not got one myself. Of course, a fresh negative could be got from the print itself. I have no nice photo of her except in groups. I'm wanting so much to get a talk with one of you who were there at Folkestone with her. Perhaps Avis or Vera or Cuthbert may be able to pay me a visit before the holidays are over. Enid, Burr and Edmund are, I expect, out of the question. When once term is begun, I shall have no spare room at all, but in the holidays I can put the whole family up, so I hope you'll always write and say if you feel like it without waiting to be asked. Cuthbert, I do like your Danger Ruse story very much. I am now reading The Impending Sword by Vachel. It is his earliest effort, and quite short, but good so far. I was interested to see by the preface that it was written in California. I always thought I detected the taint of the Yankee in his writings, but did not know where it came in. I am a very keen but inexpert angler by now, and yesterday was purchasing a supply of flies, etc. I did catch quite a respectable number last month. It is tiring work, and by no means a slacker's hobby. We have been very much exercised about finding new school colours. 
Finally, I have chosen black, white, narrow and grey. I seem to remember those as Bury St Edmunds and West Suffolk colours, and they are also the colours of the artist's corps. It is not by any means an easy job to make up one's mind on such a subject. I apologise for the quality of this letter. I am very woolly pated and I can't get my brain to work. Your affectionate brother, A. H. Machel Cox. Notes on Arthur's letter. Garfield House is just finishing exams. The contract to purchase Mount House School has been signed and Arthur is looking forward to a fortnight's holiday at Prince Hall on Dartmoor and doing some more fishing in the River Dart. He is sorry not to be playing tennis at the Stoke tournament this year, but he's probably not well enough. Arthur said that traditionally the tennis week turns into water polo, but perhaps this year, as he is out of it, it will be gloriously fine. Arthur needs to employ one more teacher, and he has a pile of applications to choose from. One candidate used Miss Taylor of Belper for a reference, which delighted Arthur as he and Edmund were pupils at her school when they were about nine and ten years old in 1879. He wrote to Miss Taylor to say hi, but he forgot to put her reply into the budget. So that is all I know about Miss Taylor and her school in Belper. It is easy to imagine Arthur and Dorothy at Mount House with Miss Tubbs, who is holding an at-home day for the parents to meet the new headmaster, which left poor Arthur hopelessly confused. It is already July and he has no idea how many boys will be turning up in September for the new term. The local rector expects Arthur will be educating his son for nothing. There is no reference whatsoever to the pounds, shillings and pence. And the Boy Scouts are mentioned again. Arthur's letter corroborates other sources I have read. New patrols were set up everywhere and by everyone. There was little or no central organisation or uniform at the start. And Baden-Powell had no idea that Scouts would become such an overnight success. Their performances would make Baden-Powell's hair stand on end, says Arthur. The noise when one goes out to any favoured resort on a Saturday or a Wednesday afternoon is astonishing, and the scouts are so thick on the ground that they tumble over one another. The siblings do like a good argument with each other. Enid, I don't spell negotiation with a C, insists Arthur, but Dorothy does. When Arthur has sent a document to the printers, including the word, it comes back corrected and the printer has added the letter C. And so Arthur gives up, although he thinks he has used the correct spelling of negotiation. One of Arthur's schoolboys rejoices in the peculiar name of Blight. And this boy has told Arthur that they have a singing mouse at their house who comes out and gives a concert in their kitchen in the evenings. Arthur is delighted with the bridesmaid's letter, describing their parents' wedding. He never knew such a letter existed. He really wants to talk to one of the siblings who was at Folkestone with mother during her last few weeks. Arthur was too ill with diphtheria to travel to see mother before she died. 
I've got no idea where they stayed, but they were there for a very long time, and there were such a lot of them. Nurse Spencer, one of the housemaids from Sydenham, Dr Cox and Vera, and then a continuing rotation of all the other siblings, apart from Arthur. I feel sure it would have been one of the hotels rather than a boarding house, but I don't think the place is ever named in a letter. And Arthur has chosen the new school colours for Mount House. He has picked black and grey with a narrow white stripe. It was not an easy choice and he now has a woolly head and he can't get his brain to work. In the next episode of 100 Years of Cox, there will be letters from Vera, Avis, Edmund and Enid, written in July and August of 1909. In Vera's letter, we have the astonishing sentence, For two days I have been alone in my glory. There is also the annual Girls' Friendly Society Festival, where about 70 girls turn up for tea and games in the garden of one of the big houses in Sydenham. But it pours with rain and Vera writes an extraordinary story about all these people having tea in the cellars. Plural. There are so many cellars under this big house. They take tables down there. There are candles and flowers for 70 people. But there is no more room in the cellars for Vera. So she has her tea in the larder. Of course, no photos have survived. You will need to imagine this scene yourself. In August, Dr Cox, Vera, Avis and Cuthbert are on holiday at the Red Lion Inn in Thursley, which is a little village in Surrey, on the London to Portsmouth Road. Avis's letter includes motor cars and dust, and Dr Cox writing his next book, which will be called Rambles in Surrey. Avis also writes about a motor car excursion with the Brooks family. They have just bought a huge motor car, which seats nine people with the chauffeur. Edmund has been to camp with the Hallam Fields Church Lads Brigade. They joined the Nottingham Battalion for the camp which took place at Western Supermare and Edmund includes some great stories about what happened at camp. Enid, Cyril and Bernard are back from Switzerland and Enid is writing from Clevedon Vicarage near Bristol where Owen and Hazel were whilst their parents were abroad. Enid tells a story about a ferocious bull up on a mountain in Switzerland. And Neville is back in England. And then we're up to Budget 22. And Bernard, who was sunburnt from Switzerland, tells more stories about the family holiday in Thursley at the Red Lion. And then Neville writes his story from Sydenham with news about his journey home by ship from Africa, including all the cricket they played. How can you play cricket on a ship? I've got no idea. But Neville was captain of the second class team and they played four matches against the first class team during the voyage home. If you would like to write to me about anything that is in this podcast, I would love to hear from you. My email is machelcoxletters at gmail.com and you can also contact me via Twitter at coxletters where I share all sorts of photos and pictures. 100 Years of Cox, the Machel Cox budget letters and all content is subject to copyright and belongs to both myself and the Bodleian Library in Oxford. You have been listening to 100 Years of Cox. 
Thank you for listening. Thank you.